Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. God, this text has life in it, has challenge, has tension it pulls us into, but it has hope for us. And so, God, I'm asking that you'd open those things up. And God, I I leave my insecurities with you and my anxieties that I feel as we step into this text. God, this is your church. These are your people. And this is your book and your story. We're asking that you would be the one that would speak to us and visit us. This is not some crowd for me to fear. God, this is a family for you today to love. Jesus, thank you for that, that we get to be together to consider you. And so, God, I'm asking, would you come and visit with us and speak to us in Jesus' name? Amen. Um, The Davis family is going to read. They're going to read to you from Mark chapter 11. Okay, now the next day, when they had come come out of Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So he came to Jerusalem. Uh, when he, so they, uh, then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables and the money changers of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought that they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, he went out of the city. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering him, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God, for assuredly I say to you, whoever says in this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done. He will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Our discussion today is centered around the temple and the tree. The temple and the tree. And you might be tempted to tune out. You just heard someone read this passage to you. And and you might sit there going, what in the world does this fig tree that Jesus curses and then Jesus entering into an ancient temple that no longer exists, what do these even have to do with my own life today? And, And I would argue with you a lot, actually. So please don't tune out. This is a passage that I think is recorded for us because it is very significant. And so don't miss out on that significance. One of the other things you might have noticed is that this is one of those passages that we've referred to as a Markin sandwich, something scholars write about 
where Mark would utilize a popular uh, linguistic form from back in this era in history, where you would sandwich two stories together where you'd enter the tension of one story and then it would pull you away from the drama of that moment to insert you in another moment and then go back to the drama of that moment again. Remember like layers on a sandwich, two pieces of bread with the flavor inside, the idea of the Mark and Sandwich, this linguistic form of or tool that's used by him, is that for you to understand what's happening here, you really need to taste the flavor of that center piece. There are these moments here, two pieces of bread where Jesus goes and in, interacts with or has this confrontation with a fig tree. And what he does in that moment is he pronounces judgment on the fig tree because of its lack of fruit. Then in between that moment where the disciples see him uh, confront the fig tree, he then goes into the temple and he has a confrontation with the temple itself. And that confrontation is because he doesn't find the fruit that he expected to find inside of the temple. And then the story is followed up by that final moment in time where he's back out with the fig tree the next day, where it's withered now because judgment had been carried out as it was promised to be. So Mark sandwiches these stories together to highlight Jesus' interaction with the temple and with the tree. And, and he does that because these clearly teach us something that the temple and its sacrificial system was failing to do for the world what it was called to do. It didn't produce the kind of fruit that it was created or intended to produce. That was the issue, that it had all the signs of life, like leaves on a tree, but no fruit that was present, the real purpose of that tree. So I think for us to really grasp and understand the significance of the moment where Jesus goes into the temple and to grasp really the significance of all of this, I think you need to get nerdy with me for a couple of minutes, so buckle up because we need to talk about the history of the temple. Because really the story of the temple and the tree actually begins not just at the construction of this building or complex, but if you go all the way back to Eden in your mind, that's where we are first greeted with the idea of the temple and the tree because the Garden of Eden itself functioned like a temple. It was the original sanctuary where heaven and earth were united together in the garden. Heaven's the word we use for the dwelling place of God, and it was the place that God dwelt, powerfully manifesting himself there, his glory present in the garden. Eden, in its beauty and perfection, allowed for the dwelling place of God to be overlapping with humanity whom he created in his image. But all of that changed when mankind rebelled. You might remember in the story that everything went wrong when for the very first time humanity would reach up to grab hold of the authority that was God's alone. They grabbed hold of the right to define good from evil. And ever since that day where mankind did that for the first time, mankind continues to self-destruct as we continue to be determined to do the same thing over and over again, to reach up and take what is God's alone, the right to define right from wrong, good from evil. And when we're doing that, we're self-destructing still. That's the tension, the brokenness that the world lives in now still today, thousands of years after this moment. You see, Scripture's so clear of the implications of that moment in time in the garden, inside the original, we could call it the temple, the sanctuary of God. The implications in Romans chapter 8, verse 20 are explained to us when it says, then creation was subjected to futility. One Hebrew scholar, he says that the word can describe deprivation, that creation is now deprived of what it needs 
that it's so deeply broken. Another scholar, he would write about that verse and he would say that there's a figurative meaning here of creation now has this under underlying reality of transientness, that it has an inability to, to find its place, that the idea is that we recognize that that creation leaves us longing for something, it's lacking something that it's meant to have. We just talked about families in our church who've lost loved ones. They're feeling that reality in a powerful way this week. Creation leaves you, the human existence now leaves you, recognizing that there is something about this that is wrong. There's something about this that is deeply broken. There's something about this that's even unnatural, it feels like, especially when we face death. Well, that's all because of the fall. The fall reminds us that the world is subjected. It shows us, it it creates for us a a reality that the world is subjected to futility. It's telling us that brokenness is creation's new default setting. The fall affected every aspect of human existence. Human sin, it, it cursed the world in every conceivable way. And human sin instantly caused a separation between heaven and earth, between God and man. Mankind was then removed, you remember, from the garden sanctuary. When they turned back to look towards that sacred space where they dwelt with God in the place called the Garden of Eden, you remember in the story in Genesis chapter 3, whether figurative or literal, what they looked back and saw was a flaming sword that moved back and forth. They looked back and saw something that unless they could pass underneath it, which it would have slaughtered them, They could never find an entrance back into the sacred space where they once dwelt united with God. This was, in a sense, that moment in Eden was, in a sense, God's first time cleansing the temple. But now we're seeing a future echo of that. But from the garden, from that moment, it was really clear that no human would ever just waltz back into God's presence ever again because the sword of eternal justice was there swinging back and forth. They're poised, ready to jump into action. It would not allow it. Now think this through with me. For some of you, you and your life, you've been terribly wronged. You you face horrible tragedy and and collided with the world's brokenness and even the brokenness of other people. For some, it's that they faced a molestation or abuse or betrayal. It's, It's an accident that happened because of someone else's selfishness that leaves an empty chair at family gatherings in your home still. It's It's lies and stealing, it's pain and trauma. And if you've hurt deeply like that and collided with the world's brokenness, you know that it's not just enough for someone to say, I'm sorry. That those things, that simple, those simple words don't bring someone back to the table who was lost to a drunk driver. That the simple statement of I'm sorry, it, it doesn't replenish or, or, or build back the, the trust and the intimacy. It, it won't replenish your account of the thousands of dollars that were taken or re- resurrect the business that was destroyed. We understand that some things are not fixed just with a simple I'm sorry. We could not imagine a world that we'd call it justice if someone stood before a judge for taking someone's life as a drunk driver where simply because they said, I'm sorry, the judge said, well, justice is served. You're free to go. You don't owe anyone anything. None of us would want to live in a world like that because we recognize that's not justice. It's injustice. Now, hear me say this. What mankind did in the garden wasn't just rebellion against God. It would forever tarnish and splinter, shatter and destroy the beauty of God's good creation. 
Creation itself is in conflict and a constant state of decay because of what happened in the garden. Society is now run, run by power and suppression, by exploitation and corruption. It's not just that divides exist in society because of what happened in the garden. It's that brokenness does. It's that cancer exists. It's that suffering and death exist, disease and poverty, that those are realities that we face. They are inescapable realities in the good creation that God had made that now has been broken. It would not be enough for any one of us just to casually step back into God's presence with a simple, I'm sorry we screwed this up. No, something must be done, not simply an empty apology being made. That's why the sword of eternal justice was present there, that flaming sword blocking the space for humanity to once again be united in that sacred space with God. There it was, the sword of eternal justice. It remained as a reminder that to re-enter that space, a sacrifice must be made. No one could get back into that space unless they passed under the sword that's what it means. But who would survive that path past the sword? Well, no one would. So how would we ever re-enter the space, the presence of God? And that's really the question that plays out throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, is how will we ever get back there, back to Eden, back to the garden sanctuary? How will things be made right? How can mankind fix this? How will God be united with us again? Fast forward then, God's answer from heaven is that he instructs his people to construct a tabernacle and later a temple. With this garden-like imagery being used in the temple, historians tell us, the, these ornate depictions throughout it that would have taken the mind of the person who's entering in through the outer courts would have taken them back into the Garden of Eden. In the middle of the temple that they constructed, as God told them to, was a place called the Holy of Holies. And inside that place, the very glory of God was present there. God created a space, a sanctuary, a temple again, much like Eden, this little area in, in, in space where, where he would dwell there in a powerful way. But that sacred space would be blocked off by these massive veils that historians tell us were as thick as a man's hand, this big, massive object that separated mankind from the presence and glory of God, except for once a year on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would go inside carrying with him an offering, a sacrifice, praying for the mercy of God to allow him to enter his presence, to pass under the sword because he's carrying with him an offering. And those moments in time, although they were so very important, they were not complete in their attempt to make things right between God and man. Each year, they'd come back and do it all over again. As one author put it, he said, even then, the blood sacrifice was only an inadequate symbol of the true atoning work that had to happen. And remember that all of this that's taking place as we're talking about how God is going to be reunited with creation, what he creates with the temple for his people did not provide anything more than just a temporary solution. And it wasn't even a temporary solution for the world. It was just a temporary solution for the Jewish people who had this special connection with God through his temple. And yet what the prophets would promise is that one day the glory of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. God's glory would one day, the holy of holies, would be experienced throughout all of creation. That all of creation would be the sacred space that God would one day occupy again. 
And Jesus in this moment is really standing up and saying that, hey, Isaiah's prophecy of all nations coming into connection with God, it's arriving, it's taking place. All people will have access and favor with God is what, what we're starting to see play out in the life of Jesus, what he will do and accomplish for us. But how? But how will he do it? How will anyone get past the sword, the sword of God's eternal justice? Isaiah the prophet answered that question. Isaiah 53. Verse 8, he's prophetically writing about the suffering that the Messiah who'd come from God, the suffering that he would endure. And Isaiah would write, Isaiah 53, verse 8, that he will be cut off from the land of the living. Jesus would pass under the sword of God's eternal justice to make a way for us. It's what we referenced last week in John's vision of, of heaven in the book of Revelation in chapter 5 where John has this vision and he's he's broken going, who is worthy? And someone speaks up and says, the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy. And when he looked for a lion, instead he found the lamb who had been slain. Christ would go under the sword, passing under the sword. He'd go to a cross, giving his own life as an innocent substitute and sacrifice. And in a book called Jesus the King, the author masterfully makes this statement. He says, and when Jesus went under the sword, it broke his body, but it also, the sword, it broke itself. Or as the old Puritan theologian famously wrote, he said, it was the death of death and the death of Christ. Death itself died in that moment. Man no longer needing to be separated from God. In fact, it's in Mark's gospel where he tells you as Jesus cries out and breathes his last, the veil in the temple that separated creation from that holy of holies, that one space where God uniquely dwelt, that the veil was torn into from top to bottom. It's telling you that the way back into the sanctuary, the garden, was now permanently open, that God no longer needed to be separated from creation and mankind, that heaven itself tore the veil of separation from top to bottom as if a statement was being made from heaven itself that we have provided a way for mankind to be united with God again. All of humanity now has access and favor to God available to them because Jesus passed under the sword of God's eternal justice. So please understand that Jesus wasn't merely, in the moment we just read in the Gospels, he's not merely disrupting the temple's practices and sacrificial system. He's arriving, yes, to fulfill, but also to overturn the entire sacrificial system. And his embrace of the cross would render it all obsolete because every type and foreshadow that it was picturing would be fulfilled in what Jesus would do on a cross. Where Jesus, he enters the temple in this moment as the lion driving people out of it. But within days, he'll suffer as a lamb, making a way for all people to have access and favor with God to enter into the most sacred of spaces. A space that can exist with you and God together again. Something creation has longed for since sin first entered it. Now take a deep breath and think back all the way to where our discussion began. Because it began in Eden, where mankind destroyed the capacity for creation to have this unhindered connection with its creator. And in that moment, when that happened, what is the first thing Adam and Eve did? Do you remember? They made for themselves a covering, didn't they? They covered their sin and their shame, and they did it with the leaves of a fig tree. They made their own covering for themselves to hide their sin and shame from God, and they did it with fig leaves. 
The detail's not been lost on the church throughout the ages. In fact, there's an early church father from the 4th century uh, who was a part of the church at Jerusalem named uh, Cyril, and, and he wrote about it, and it's preserved for us. Here's what he says about this moment. He says, remember the time of the sin of Adam and Eve. They clothed themselves with what? With fig leaves. That was their first act after the fall. So now Jesus is making the same figure of the fig tree the very last of his wonderful signs. Just as he headed towards the cross, he cursed the fig tree with symbolic significance saying, may no one ever eat of your fruit again. In this way, the curse laid upon Adam and Eve is being reversed. That no human being need ever to reach up towards that tree to try to do what Adam and Eve had had done at the dawn of brokenness entering in the world. No other person is going to have to provide for themselves their own covering. Jesus was making a statement here that this is done. No one need ever again to turn to their own effort, to their own devices, to come up with a suitable covering for their sin or their shame. We could read this as heaven's statement over all of creation that that not one of you should ever be drawn back to this tree looking for life or for a covering because you'll find none here because Jesus would tell you because I'm going to a different tree where I will be the one who takes on a curse. But Galatians says, cursed is him who hangs upon the tree. He will become the accursed of God so that we become the recipients of heaven's blessing and the blessing of being reconnected with God. In that moment where God will prove that his love is equally as powerful as his desire for justice, when he would demand justice at any and all costs to himself, where he himself becomes the object of his divine wrath, so that we can become the object and recipient of his unmerited love by him stepping under the sword. Divine God of justice, as he stepped under the sword, he suffered for that, for us, so that we could become the children of a loving heavenly father. There's a, this is a powerful moment in time that has implications from creation back at the beginning all the way into our future in our experience where heaven and earth collide again completely and totally, where the glory of God covers the earth. All of those moments are wrapped up in this exchange that Jesus is having. So do this with me, though. Let's shift gears. Let's shift gears to talk through the story and draw some application out of the story, some application from Jesus' confrontation with the temple and the tree. Jesus' confrontation with the temple and the tree. It leaves us with, I think, three different things at least. The first is a warning, but it also leaves us with a tension, and then it leaves us with a question that we'll consider. It leaves us with a warning first, though. And the warning is to those who lose sight of their purpose. The story, I think, here leaves us in the in, in a feeling of a, a warning shot being fired towards those who lose their sense of purpose. Remember the Mark and Sandwich. It, it's that connecting point between the tree and the temple. It, it was that neither of them were producing the fruit that they were created to produce. 
the, the tree becomes this very memorable object lesson that Jesus will use. He could have just told the disciples. He could have taught them these things. He could have taught them, as he often did, just with the parable. But instead of using even a parable, he chooses to use a living parable, a vivid image in front of them where he reaches into nature to have something happen so that, it, that, that its impact was deeper than just his words. Now they're, they're, in a sense, experiencing it with all five senses there beside him. Don't miss him. The living parable of what he does with the tree gives the disciples and us, the readers, the reason, this is important, the living parable gives us, the readers, the reason for what Jesus is about to do in the temple. If you want to know why did Jesus go in the temple and do this, well, he gives us the reason in the object lesson with the tree. One commentator I read He wrote this about this passage. He just said that this passage has vexed theologians for centuries. It it probably, it, it probably brings that kind of conflict up in your heart. It definitely did mine this week studying this. This was a challenging passage to work through because there are things here that we, we don't always know how to categorize when we are looking at God and wanting to, to, to have a confidence in God that there are some things here that we feel unsettling about God. It makes me think of in C.S. Lewis in his writings, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Remember, someone asks about Aslan, who's this Jesus-like figure, the lion, and says, but is he safe? Do you remember the response? The response is, no, he's not safe, but he's glorious, and he's good. Is he safe? He's not just a lamb. He's a lion. No, he's not safe, but he's glorious. He's good. When Jesus condemns the tree... It's not happening because Jesus had a bad day, just woke up on the wrong side uh, of the bed or whatever. It's not because he's unaware even of what seasoned figs were meant to be produced, which you might point in your Bible and say, well, hang on, it actually gives us that clue, but slow down. It was because, the reason he cursed the tree is because it had signs of life and health. It's covered in leaves, but it lacked the fruit that is the byproduct of real life and health. But Trevor, Mark says he's confused because in verse 13, it says that he, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. It's true that figs are not usually in season in the springtime, at least in this region of the world. It's not until much later in the year. And we know it is springtime because they're there for Passover. And we know where Passover falls in the calendar. It's the end of March, beginning of April. And so some people, scholars, they look at this throughout the ages and they say, well, there are actually some fig trees in that region of the world who are a unique species, and this is true even today, that they'll produce their figs early in the year. And so maybe it's one of those trees that would have produced early, and yet it was failing to produce, and that's why Jesus cursed it. Others will say, well, actually, before the figs will be in full bloom and ripe and ready to be eaten months later, sometimes what happens is these little nodules show up on the tree as it leaves, and those nodules are promised of future fruit, and those nodules can be taken and eaten I don't know about you, but I've never been excited or felt drawn to anything that someone referred to as a nodule and wanted to like put it in my mouth, but apparently people did that. Others just emphasize this, though, that Mark's point here is that regardless of what others expected of the tree, Jesus was looking and expecting fruit to be present, and failing to find some was problematic. Now carry that line of thinking over to the temple where he enters. After all, that's what the living illustration of Jesus' interaction with the tree is all about, remember. Others may not have any, have seen any problem with what was happening in the temple, but Jesus wasn't interested in public opinion polls. 
what he saw from his perspective, he found it deeply troubling. You see, the temple was meant to function as God's dwelling place on the earth, and it was also meant to serve, in a sense, as an invitation to the world. It demonstrated that God dwelt amongst his people, the nation of Israel, but it also it also was a proof text of his presence and power for the world around it to see. The nation and the temple itself had devolved, though, being reduced from God's light amongst the Gentiles and his invitation in the end to the world, it had devolved and been reduced to this closed-off exclusive and even hatefully arrogant existence where Gentiles were referred to in rabbinic writings from this era of time that Jesus were alive, was alive, that Gentiles referred to as dogs or as logs for the fires of hell. That God had to create something to keep the fires of hell burning and so he created the the filthy dogs, the Gentiles, to exist just for that, rather than seeing them as nations and tribes, cities and villages, people that they should have been burdened for as their God whom they worshipped was burdened for those nations and people. So track with me, the, the temple was the sacred space God made for them so that they could be with him and worship him. But remember that when creation lost something, what they lost at the fall was this deep, unhindered connection with their creator. And now it's neither about sharing, the temple is neither about sharing his heart for the world, nor is it even a place where they're coming, it seems, to express their own heart's gratitude to God. Oh, sure, there's signs of life, but there's no real heartfelt life inside any longer. The nation's relationship with their God, Yahweh, and his creation was like a tree that's covered with leaves, but has zero fruit. Atop the Temple Mount is the temple complex. And if you've ever seen images of it, or if you've ever been there even now in person and seen the Temple Mount complex, it it wasn't just a massive building. It was a large, massive complex. The building itself was referred to as the intercourt. And only uh, the priest would enter inside of the inner court. And there, the Holy of Holies, the one guy once a year would go through that curtain to the place where God's sacred space dwelt. But outside of those spaces was the court of the men. Outside of that space, a larger space, was the court of the women. And all around this massive plateau that is the Temple Mount is the court of the Gentiles. The majority of the Temple Mount was called the court of the Gentiles because the Gentiles could come and could worship and pray there. And the Jews were meant to pray for salvation to reach the Gentiles from that space. That's what God created it for. Uh, A football field is about an acre and a third And if you look at the footprint of the Temple Mount, it's 37 acres. It's roughly 28 football fields is the the expanse of it. That's not where the the size of the building. The building was very small on top of that. But the majority of that was this sprawling out massive outdoor patio area called the Court of the Gentiles. It was open to the Gentiles for them to come. And when Jesus enters the Court of the Gentiles in this moment... The place for the world to come and see and worship the God of Israel and the place reserved for prayer to God, for mercy on the nations. What Jesus saw instead would have looked like the floor of the New York Stock Exchange if you threw in tens of thousands of little lambs bleeding and making all sorts of noises and then countless doves that are caged all around the temple complex. What he walked up and found, rather than worship and quiet contemplation and prayer, what he found was chaos. It was a marketplace. It was like walking into a farmer's market on steroids. 
Historians from the time of Christ, they tell us that business in the temple was very lucrative and that it was being developed by a former high priest by the name of Annas. Annas found that the business was so lucrative that he resigned from his position and title in order to further develop the business of buying and selling sacrifices and that he moved the markets to do that inside the temple so that he had a corner on the market. So that if you were coming to make your sacrifice, that you'd have to do business with him. There was massive money to be made on every lamb that was purchased, on every dove that was purchased. The doves were the offering that a family who was too poor to afford a lamb, which do you remember in the story that when Jesus' parents came to bring an offering when he was just a baby, do you remember that they brought doves? It tells you that his family didn't have much of anything. They couldn't afford it. But the doves were reserved for the poor people as another option that God in his mercy gave to creation to give as a sacrifice. But you could not buy either of those sacrifices unless you used the, the, the temple-affirmed shekel. We won't take your filthy money from these other lands. And so you have to pay to exchange your currency into our acceptable currency. And there is an exchange rate that's added or a fee that's added to that inflated exchange rate. All of it was a racket. And after days of travel, if you're picturing yourself, if you're traveling with your family back towards Jerusalem from Galilee, days of travel in the family caravan where you're carrying with you a spotless lamb that has no blemish or issue that you'll use as a sacrifice, you're guarding that thing so carefully, trying to get it there. But when you arrive, it it was not an easy task, but you did it because God had asked you to do it. And because you believe that God deserved your best, but when you got there, you'd turn it over to be examined. And if the priest looked it over and said, no, 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 we think that there's a flaw, there's something wrong with this one, you have to buy one of ours. That's when you're then pointed to the exchange table and then into their open marketplace where for an exorbitant price, you'd have to buy an animal from them. And we do know that they marked up the prices. The Mishnah talks about how a dove costs 25 times the cost it would would be charged any other place. It was 25 times more expensive to buy it inside the temple. But in the temple, this is the one that will cover your sins. Do you see how broken and and messed up, how twisted this had become? This was the sacred space where God was once again being reunited with creation, and instead it's turned into a market for for benefits. It's it's turned into a, a market for consumerism. It's turned into a market where people are lining their pockets from it. And when Jesus brings the whole thing crashing down by knocking over the tables and the chairs and crashing open the cages of these animals, when he's doing it, it's no wonder that John's gospel tells you the very first person that Jesus will stand before after he's arrested is Annas, the former high priest. That's the first guy he stands in front of, was the guy who ran the markets, because he had turned his business upside down. It's also the first place Jesus will receive a blow that night, because he'll be slapped in front of him for failing to respect this man and what this man had built. He would then be turned over to his son-in-law and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who had taken over the position of the high priest. That's how the story of Jesus will play out. The Talmud, these ancient writings from the first century, they refer to what's happening here and what the priests were doing. They refer to them as the sons of Eli. If you know your Old Testament, you might remember Eli, the priest in Israel. His sons did all sorts of horrendous things, exploiting the people, even relationships they had with people where they exploited their influence and power and were involved with people sexually that they shouldn't have been. The whole thing is so broken in the Old Testament. And the the cultural look at this moment is that this is just a bunch of sons of Eli's that are running this temple now. Jesus referred to them not as sons of Eli. He referred to them as thieves, and he referred to the temple mount as the den of thieves. 
A thieves' den is where you retreat to to feel safe. And that's how bad it had gotten. The Talmud says that they would take things by force, creatively finding ways to make more and more, or they would just physically assault people to shake them down for more money. And then they would use those proceeds, according to historians, to line their pockets and to purchase gold that would be melted down and added to the temple to make it an even more desirable and beautiful place in worship of their God. It was so twisted. And all of it seems to explain why in this moment, did you notice that it says that the people, the people seem to latch on to what Jesus is doing and the religious leaders, they're determined to kill Jesus because he's just swayed the hearts of the people in this moment. It seems like the people have had enough with it as well. And so when Jesus does this, he gets, in a sense, another hero's welcome, where it's probably not just him knocking tables and chairs over. We're talking tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of sacrifices that are housed there, and things are being knocked over. I assume it turns into what feels almost like a riot atop the Temple Mount. But did you notice that Jesus didn't just kick out the sellers who were exploiting the situation and extorting people? He also kicked out the buyers. Did you notice that? He took issue with all of this taking place inside the temple courts because we asked the question, well, was it wrong for someone to buy a replacement lamb because theirs got sick on the journey? Or, or it tripped and broke its leg or had an animal attacked it that left it with a blemish? Is that wrong? Well, no, not at all. The issue is that it was taking place inside the space that God had set aside as separate and sacred from the rest of creation, the space that was set aside for man to connect with God in a beautiful and powerful way. And instead, it became something so far removed from that. You see, Jesus' confrontation here with the temple and the tree, it leaves us with a warning to those who lose sight of their purpose. A warning for those who lose sight of their purpose. Think about this for us. The warning for us, then, is that we have to answer the question for us personally, is our temple experience, our temple experience here, each Sunday, is it about a transaction? Is that what it's become about? Or is its foundation an expression of your love and gratitude to God? Has your right standing with God been begin to be seen as just some byproduct of some transactional relationship that you foster with Him? Or is your right standing with Him what you come to celebrate each week we gather together? You see, we need to protect, I think, our relationship with Jesus from becoming some transactional agreement. The only transaction that was made in this relationship with Jesus is one he made himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin, who became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. The transaction that took place between Jesus and I is that he took my sin and I was given his sonship. You see, in the story, Jesus confronts us like he confronted the temple and the tree. And his confrontation leaves us realizing that God wants more than some outward show of busyness and commotion. He wants your heart. And he wants your faith. Not some empty ritualistic life that's driven by duty. He wants your heart. The temple is reduced to this transactional institution. Don't let. Don't let your personal relationship with Jesus, don't let your public relationship with Jesus, your relationship with our church ever become that for you, just a transactional institution. 
Empty religion is not what Jesus is after. A vibrant life of faith and hope and love is what he's after. And he describes that kind of faith, didn't he? He describes it in verse 22, where he begins to talk to them about having faith in God, a faith that's confident enough to say to this mountain, be removed, and it would be cast into the sea. He's not promising here that, that if you have faith in God, that anything you wish, you can get. We, we know that's not true from experience. We know that's not true from the rest of Scripture. What prayer is is not a magic wand. That's not what Jesus is promising. It's describing, though, a faith that believes that God is fully capable of handling anything, and in Hebrew, a Hebrew idiom that's used often in ancient writings is a mountain would be descriptive words that were used for anything that seemed insurmountable or impossible, that he could remove mountains from before you. It's interesting that they're standing at the Temple Mount. If there was a this mountain, he's saying this whole broken system will not stand in your way because I'm going to make a way for creation to be made right with God and creation to be united with God, and you're going to carry that message, and this mountain will be removed, that it become a hindrance to people connecting with God. It may be that he pointed to an adjacent mountain where there's a Herodian fortress, where historians tell us that Herod had used a whole bunch of slave labor to literally deconstruct a, mount, a neighboring mountain, a massive hill, took all of the dirt from it, and recreated a a man-made mountain as a plateau and foundation for his new fortress. It was this massive accomplishment that man had moved a mountain, and he's saying, that's nothing. Don't you know with your faith what can happen? Another way that mountains were used in ancient writing was to talk about ancient empires. It wasn't just the Temple Mount that was present there, but adjacent to it was this massive fortress that represented the authority of Rome and the presence of Pontius Pilate being there to govern over them with a throat on their fo- uh, a foot on their throats. And for him to say, this mountain will be cast into the sea, he's saying, even, uh, even those who oppress you, not just inside the temple who exploit you, but those who oppress you, they will be cast into the sea. They will not withstand you. Remember, the sea is an ancient idiom. It's used for chaos and evil. They'll be thrown back to where they came from. They're fueled by the powers of hell, and hell itself will be pushed back because of what I'm entrusting you to do as my people if you'll carry out my mission and my message. He's saying, have faith that that's that's what the reality of the situation is, that if God is for you, who and what can stand against you? Jesus confronted them about their lifeless and broken relationships, even on a horizontal level. When then he, he told them, addressing seemingly their disgust with the outsiders, where they've, they've overrun the court of the Gentiles, leaving no room for Gentiles to come and be prayed for, or them to come and quietly worship the God of Israel, the God Yahweh. And, and he's addressing them, talking to them about their forgiveness, telling them how important it is that they forgive. And if your life of faith, it's the question we have to ask ourselves, is my life of faith marked by love and forgiveness towards other people? And Scripture says that we love because he first loved us. That as a follower of Jesus, I have experienced this profound and powerful love and forgiveness by being connected with Jesus that then enables me to love and forgive in a way that I never could have in any other way. I couldn't have motivated that within myself, but I've tasted of something so good it's transformative. There's a warning here. The story, the confrontation of the temple and tree leaves you with a warning to those who lose sight of their purpose. He loves you. He loves you. Don't let that loving relationship turn into writ and ritual that's empty. It's a good reminder for me this week, personally. 
just to slow down and go, this, this is not about building anything. This is not about public anything. This is about Jesus, knowing Jesus. I just want Jesus to be my passion. I want to celebrate the grace of God. Do you remember when the disciples come back from being sent out and they come back and say, Jesus, we cast out demons in your name. We healed the sick. And he said, don't glory in that. Glory that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. If you glory in what you've accomplished, it's going to leave you arrogant or crushed. Arrogant because you'll compare yourself to other people and then you'll remove yourself far from God because I no longer need him. Look at what I've done. Or crushed now under under the pressure of, hang on, that happened, we've done that, and I've got to constantly prove myself. We've got to constantly. But if I just glory in the fact that by God's grace, I've been saved, that is such a safe space to live in. But I don't know what it is about us that naturally drives us from that beautiful safe space. But sometimes we have to slow down and heed the warning and say, Jesus, I repent, and I want to go back to that space. Jesus' confrontation also leaves us with a tension, not just a warning. There's a tension it leaves us with here, and I'll just do this quickly, but there's a tension when we see God's judgment and we find ourselves looking for his mercy. The tension is when we see his judgment and yet we have to go looking for his mercy. You know, this is the only miracle from the life of Jesus that is really exclusively destructive. Think about it. His miracles were almost always about restoration, not destruction. It's restoration of someone's sight or ability to walk. It's restoration of the leper where he's not just healed, but he's restored back into life and in society, inside the, his, his local synagogue, inside his community, inside his home with his wife and children. That's what Jesus was doing, was restoring. There is the, there's the miracle that takes place that was destructive where, remember, the, the pigs went off the cliff after Jesus drove those demons out of a boy who was suicidal and into the pigs, and the pigs then went off the cliff, and it was destructive to the economy of that village. But it was at the cost of the restoration of the boy. And it challenged the value system of the community. But what about this moment in time where it seems exclusively destructive? What about this miracle where he curses the tree? Some people really are bothered by this. And if they are, I just say most of us at Christmas do the same thing. We cut down trees and put them in our homes and celebrate. So I don't know that it's showing that Jesus is malevolent. You see, the bigger tension, I think, is the challenge and tension we feel when we seemingly see God's judgment, but we feel that we see a vacancy of his mercy in those moments. And this moment specifically did have more than just judgment. Remember, it's a merciful appeal that Jesus is making to individuals to repent and pursue God again with a pure heart, lest they end up like the tree that was lifeless and dead inside. Remember, it also provides a clear demonstration that mankind cannot cover themselves or their sin in order to be united with God and safely in his presence again, as Adam and Eve attempted to do with those fig leaves in the garden. I'm so thankful God's not like us in so many ways. And one of the ways he's not like us is in his relationship with his emotions. We would ascribe what we call human emotion to our God, undoubtedly, because scripture ascribes those things to God. Uh, Emotions like that he's grieved or feels compassion, that he's jealous and even has anger. However, God's relationship with those emotions are totally different than our human volatility. Uh, we go to anger management to try to learn how to counterbalance our, our, our passionate anger or our outburst of rage. We're trying to counterbalance it with 
compassion and patience. So our anger, what we're hoping to do is have it be so that our anger is not the only emotion that's present in that outburst. And God is so different from us. Yes, there is righteous anger. It's right to be angry about some things and to express it in the right way. We can lash out, though, when it's a far stronger emotion that we feel than any other emotion inside of ourselves, but not with Jesus. There's this perfect balance. And I would argue all throughout the scriptures with God, there is a perfect balance of these emotions where God's love and compassion is still present and being expressed in the moments, like with this tree, the moments that we wrestle through without or throughout the history of what we read about in the Bible, that God's mercy and compassion are still present in a moment as horrendous as the judgment God brings on the earth through a flood, where his love and compassion were still present and being expressed towards creation because society is on a collision course with self-destruction, and this was God intervening. It's when God would send his people into entire villages that they would wipe out the entire village who worshiped the, the deity Molech, where they would sacrifice their children to that God. It wasn't just God's judgment boiling over or his anger just percolating in that setting. No, it was that his mercy and his compassion and love were also equally present because God was going to stop the spread of that pagan demonic worship from spreading like a cancer into other areas we, we have to recognize that it still leaves us with the tension of, oh my God, I can't believe it got this bad. But what did it do to the heart of God, not just to lash out in anger, but to have his mercy and compassion be equally present? Think of it like at the cross. Where the judgment of God is fully expressed, but the love of God, the compassion of God was equally expressed in the moment that Jesus would cry out and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We live in attention sometimes looking towards the judgment of God and saying, but where is your mercy? We have to believe that his love and his mercy are still present in those moments. There is no God of the Old Testament and then some God of the New Testament where the old guy in the Old Testament's crotchety and grouchy and yelling, get off my lawn. And in the New Testament, it's Jesus wanting to carry a lamb and hug your child. Jesus gives a greater and clearer revelation of God, no doubt. But it's a greater and clearer look at the same God. And we know God's not truly loving unless he's also always just. I have a friend this week who reminded me that we have a tendency to want a God who's just when we've been wronged, but we demand a God of mercy and love when we are wrong. I mean, when you think about it, it's like our desire to blame God when things go wrong because we believe that he possesses the power and the wisdom to rescue us from pain and injustice while still refusing to admit that in his infinite wisdom, he may have reasons for allowing those things that are beyond my understanding. That is who we're dealing with. You see, I think this story leaves us with a tension. When we see God's judgment, but we fail to find his mercy, we have to know and understand and believe that it's still present. Okay, here's the last thing, and you can close your Bible as we consider this. It's a question. There's a warning. The confrontation Jesus has here, it leaves us with a warning to those who lose their purpose. There's also, though, a tension that we're faced with when we see judgment and we're having to look for mercy. But there's a question. It leaves us all personally with the question of what does it look like when God is forsaken? What's it really look like when God is forsaken by a church or by a person? What's it look like for God to be forsaken? We might all have different answers. 
It might help us if we, if we just agreed first on what does it look like to follow God by faith, the opposite of forsaking him. Well, well Jesus has described it. It's radical faith in God, and then it's, it's self-sacrificial love towards others, even a willingness to forgive other people. That's what that looks like. So what does forsaking God look like? Well, in our story, it doesn't leave us feeling like, well, forsaking God is, is people who leave their faith completely. I, the story, it surprises us that it's not just those who say, well, now I'm an atheist. It's not just those who walk out on their marriages and their families that have forsaken God. It's not just those who quit praying or going to church. The story tells me that I can have leaves but no fruit, every outward sign of life but no real life, and that's because God has been forsaken. All the signs of life can be visible, and yet no fruit can be found in my own life. Like a tree that, when viewed from afar, it looks so promising and healthy and well until you get close enough to have it revealed to you that it lacks any real life or vitality at all. It's fooled us. Or like a temple overflowing with hustle and bustle, so much happening, so much movement, even so much money money traveling through it, and yet no real life or vitality remains inside of it. It's fooled us, and it's forsaken God. When a person is like this, we call it hypocrisy. And Jesus' confrontation, it leaves us with the question of what's it look like when a person forsakes God, when, when either a church or a person, a church forsakes God and is hypocritical, it's When it's forsaken, it forsakes God when it loses sight of the mission that God has entrusted to us. You see, the issue here wasn't necessarily a theological one. It was a missional one. It was missiological. According to the scriptures, every church now, every every place of worship, we exist for the exaltation of God, for the encouragement and edification, for the equipping of the saints, and for the evangelization of the world. What's it look like for a church to forsake God? I think it's to forsake those things. And I'll tell you, the hardest one for us to not forsake is the evangelization of the world. It's our mission. And the reason I think it's so hard is because unlike many many other times in history, maybe unlike any other time in history, I don't know that the world is looking our direction as a church entity for answers for anything. We've lived through so much brokenness in the last couple of years, and many in the world point our direction and say, you're complicit. You made it worse. And the truth is, they're right. If we're going to generalize and say, well, what has the church done? We've compounded division in our country. We've taken sides just like everyone else. And then in the name of Christ, people have done terrible atrocities during this time. People are not coming to us like they did after 9-11. They came to churches after 9-11 because they believed that the church still had integrity and they believed that the church had answers for them. They're not coming. Our mission is still the same, but our tactic is totally different. I don't assume that we're going to do much evangelizing from a public pulpit here. Our evangelism is going to be through our lives loving our neighbors out there. Because I don't think they're coming. And it's our fault they're not coming. It's the church's fault. We can blame the brokenness of the world, but we've proven we're just as broken as they are. Think of all the infighting. The sad thing is that your neighbors and mine view me as your pastor. They view me as the guy who went into the Capitol with the buffalo head on, shirtless and storming through, and then taking a moment to set his sign down that said, God wins, and in between profanity-laced statements, begin to pray, thanking God for victory. That's how they view me. That's not who we are. That's not what our mission ever was. 
A church can easily be reduced down to a codependent community, which is a great gift in our lives to have codependence, to have support and love from each other. But if it's only that, then we've fallen short of what we are intended to be. We've forsaken God and left and given up on our God-given mission. We believe, and I hope this isn't the first time you're hearing this, that the success of our church is not based on what's said, sung, or done here. The success of our church is based on what you do when you leave here because you are the ministers. That's what scripture says. So this is neither the barometer of how we're doing, nor is this the end, our Sunday gathering. We gather to scatter. That's what our church exists for. To gather to worship God, to be equipped, and then to go out and change our community by loving our neighbor well. Our church is guilty of forsaking God when we lay down the torch that the church through the ages has faithfully passed on to us in this current generation by failing to love our neighbor and spread the message of Jesus. And that message and that mission more than ever is going to be carried out by you as you engage with your neighbor out there on their turf. You see, the passage is not just a massive development in the life and plan of Jesus and in the life and development of the plan of God for the world. It's also a huge warning to us, not just about what the temple became, but about what a church can become or even what for me as an individual heart, an individual follower of Jesus, what my life can become. You see, our lives personally as followers of Jesus, the real fruit is not busyness or religious activity. The real fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, what did Paul write to the church He'd say the fruit of the Spirit is love. Singular. The fruit singular is love. That love is not just a feeling like, I am a loving person. It will be seen, expressed, your love will, and your joy. It'll be seen, expressed, in your patience. It'll be seen, expressed, in your compassion, your kindness. That's what he writes about. That that's the byproduct of the work of the Spirit in your life is the fruit of the Spirit manifesting for the world to taste and experience the goodness of God through their contact with you. There's something here, a question for us about our mission. There's a question we have to answer for us collectively, but for us individually as well. Have we forsaken God by giving up and and, and setting the torch down that's faithfully been passed to us through all these generations? My friends, the, the temple and the tree, Jesus will soon he will soon embrace a tree. The story is not just about condemnation towards them who are outside. It's that Jesus takes our condemnation because he will embrace a tree when he goes to the cross that he would provide for you a better covering than anything we could ever work for. The Lamb of God would arise as the lion to defend me, even from the sword of eternal justice. He would both be the wielder of that sword and willingly become the victim of that sword at the cross. And when he did that, the veil in the temple turned into from top to bottom because God would no longer need to be separated from his people. The Spirit of God now resides in you. Scripture says you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our world encounters the true and living God as they reach into your life and are touched by him through you. The story of the temple and tree echoes into our lives because Jesus would hang as the cursed one on a tree, because his spirit would now reside in us, the temple of the Holy Spirit, so that people could find a better experience than what they found on the Temple Mount that day. And my hope is that they do. A far different experience than than would have been experienced that day, that what they'd find when they interact with me 
is the love of God for them. And so, Jesus, your love is powerful enough not just to touch my life and to touch our lives and to rescue us, but it's powerful enough for it to touch our lives and transform us. And Jesus, we ask for that transforming work. But we know that that requires the humility and place of hypocrisy. It requires that we take off our metaphorical fig leaves that shield us, shield our brokenness and our hurt, all that's messy about us. But as we take them off, we believe you provide a better covering that does more than just cover, it transforms. And so, Jesus, we look to you and we'll step into humility and brokenness, believing that you'll rescue us. Jesus, may we carry out your mission. Jesus, you gave your life for this cause. Jesus, will give our everything because you gave everything for us. Jesus, use us in this community. I pray for this year as we are now two months into 2022. I'm praying for, for new believers to, to come into a relationship with you, Jesus, to enter into the sacred space of the Holy of Holies, of having your, your amazing power and life connected to their life because of the impact of this church, because of people who are part of our family here, who go out into their neighborhoods and workplaces and who love people, Jesus, like you would love them. Jesus, we're praying that you would use us to carry out your mission, not just to bring in new converts, but to disciple them, to teach them what it looks like to follow Jesus with us. Jesus, use our church. Use us, please, we humbly ask. Jesus, it's for you, for your glory. It's, it's not for us. Lord, thank you. Thank you, thank you for your grace, your patience towards us. We're so thankful in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.